What's up? It's Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Thanks for listening to the Under the Hood podcast presented by Coors Light. Stay inside and buy your Coors Light online. Find out how at get.coorslight.com. Coors Light, take time to chill. It's Under the Hood. Follow us on the gram at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. This is Chicago's home for sports, ESPN 1000. Mitch Trubisky has been denied his fifth-year option by the Chicago Bears. We're talking about it right here on ESPN 1000. Glad to have you in here on this Monday night. Hit me up on Twitter, Twitter.com, TweetJHood. We turn to the man who is part of Pro Style Media. We'll hear from Earl Bennett in just a moment. But I look forward to seeing exactly what is going on with this uh, with this. Bears team moving forward. You know, the big story of the weekend about Mitch Trubisky and how that fifth-year option is uh, is not in the cards. It is telling me for sure that the Bears want Trubisky to battle with Nick Foles for the starting job. And we turn to Earl Bennett from the former Bears wide receiver, part of the Pro Style Media. Always check out his podcast wherever you download your podcast. Look for Pro Style Media. And he joins me, Jonathan Hood, here on ESPN 1000. Earl, Jonathan Hood, thanks so much for your time. Jonathan, how are you doing tonight? I appreciate you having me. I'm doing very well, Earl. Thank you very much. I want to get your thoughts. We have not spoken since uh, the draft for the Bears, but you know the story that came across over the weekend regarding Trubisky, how the Bears did not offer a fifth-year option for Trubisky. What was your reaction to that story this weekend? I was uh, a little bit surprising, seeing as how high they've been on him this offseason, saying that he's our guy, he's our starting quarterback going into the season. But you hear all those talks, you know, out towards the public. But behind closed doors, there's a lot of questions that needs to be answered. And I think by Ryan Pace and Matt Nagy not picking up his option, it's evident that they don't think he's the quarterback of the future or he just needs to prove it. Even if he do well this season coming up, I'm still not sure if they re-sign him to a long-term deal just because there's a lot of inconsistencies there. You know, I'm wondering I'm wondering what's going through Mitch's mind because you know that the Bears have defended him even with mediocre play where it just seems like it's not clicking for him, Earl, but yet – now they had to make a decision by Monday, uh, by today, on whether or not they were going to get, give him the option or not. He doesn't get it. I wonder what's going through his mind now, knowing that you know Nick Foles is on the depth chart right behind him. He doesn't get his option. I wonder, what, what's he thinking? I mean, we saw the same thing happen with Kyle Fuller. How they didn't pick up his you know fifth year option, but they wanted him to come out and prove that he can consistently go out compete and play at a high level each and every weekend. And they ended up rewarding him with a huge contract after the Packers tried to sign him. And so you, they're kind of using a, a little uh, reverse psychology on Mitch right now. You know, they're really trying to get him to say, Hey, this is my contract year. I need to go out and prove it. There's no more years left on my contract. And so it's up to me to go out and to prove to this franchise that I do belong. But in the back of his mind, there has to be a little doubt about his future with the Chicago Bears because they did pick up his option. If I'm Mitch, I'm sitting there trying to figure out how do I get better, what player I need to work out with, what trainer, my diet, some things I need to work on with staying healthy for my shoulder. I mean, there's a lot of things that he can do to get better during this time. And if he wanted to continue to be the starting quarterback for the Chicago Bears, he definitely has to come out and prove it. Starting in training camp, 
make that transition towards the season. And you just got to continue it throughout the season. But right now, it's time to be mentally sharp, mentally focused. Earl, how detrimental is doubt on that football field? Oh, it's very detrimental. I mean, anything going out on the field, you want to have the highest of the high confidence. And some other guys that are very confident on the other side of the ball. So if you have any inkling of doubt in the back of your mind, it's going to show in your play. Your footwork's going to be inconsistent. You're going to question some of your throws. You're going to be hesitant with making certain throws. And that doubt will, will really get you out of the league. And so Mitch, he has to put these past couple of years behind him and say, look, I'm a new man. I got to turn over a new leaf and I got to go out here and prove it. If not, not just my career as a Chicago Bears maybe does, but, I mean, his career as a NFL player could be done very fast because, I mean, we, we're seeing Cam Newton don't have a job. You have um, Jameis Winston. He just, what, he'll be the third-string quarterback for the Saints, and he was just a starter for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So, I mean, the, the, the availability for quarterbacks is starting to dwindle. And if Mitch wants to stay in the league, he has to come out and show that he can be a competent quarterback each and every week. Former Bears wide receiver Earl Bennett for a part of the Pro Style Media podcast with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. Just a sidebar on that Cam thing. Earl, that's wild. Like if, his, if his ankle and foot is good, if he's good to go, then I don't know why he couldn't be on somebody's roster by now. It's we're having this conversation on May 4th for real. Like, so Andy Dalton can get that job with Dallas as a backup. It makes sense. Like Andy Dalton, mm. Andy Dalton gets a backup mm-hmm. to, to Dak in Dallas. Right. But yet Cam is still looking for a job. Now Cam, Cam says he doesn't want to be anyone's backup. And I, and I think that he still has to prove that he's healthy. That's one. But if he is, he can't start for any team in this league. Yeah, that one's a real head scratcher considering the high level that Cam was playing at before he got injured. Obviously, you know, there, there was a new regime that came with the Panthers, the new owner, so they wanted to really get their guy in. They brought Teddy Bridgewater signed into a long term deal. But when you look at Cam Newton's makeup, you look at what Cam Newton was able to do. I honestly have no clue why the Chicago Bears didn't go out to Cam Newton, especially if you're really trying to run your system at Nagy. I don't know if there's a better quarterback that was out on the market that would fit what he wants to do than Cam Newton. And obviously there are some things there with, you know, maybe their personalities didn't mesh well, or maybe Cam is not as healthy. But, I mean, we're talking about Heisman Trophy winner, MVP winner, took the team, carried them on his back to the Super Bowl. Obviously, they lost, but this kid has played at a very high level, and I think he could still play at a higher level than Mitch. But it's one of those things that I, I really don't have a tr- – obviously, he's coming off an injury. That's one thing that people will allude to. But when I look at Cam Newton's body of work, there's no reason why he shouldn't be competing for a starting job. I'm not saying you hand him a starting job, but he definitely should be competing for a starting job in the NFL somewhere. It's that hat and that scarf, man. They just can't get over it. 
I like the head in this car. You know, let, let the guy be free. You know, let him style a little bit and, and have fun. As long as he's getting a job, then I don't care. I mean, you could come to work in a, a, a Canadian tux. As long as you're throwing that ball around the field, we get W's. Hey, man, keep on wearing that Canadian tux. We could, we could use a lot of wins in Chicago right now. There's no question. And the same question goes to New England the same way, right? So you're good with a kid, Stidham, that's unproven and not Cam? Or not – like, Jameis, look, if you don't want Jameis Winston on your team because he throws too many picks and he's got 30 touchdowns, 30 interceptions, and you'll think there's a second act with him, okay, that's that's your choice. But with Cam, I just think that's uh, – it's interesting. There's some there's some jobs in the league, uh, Earl, that, that he could be part of, and he's, he's not. So it's Jared Stidham, Cam Newton. I think I would take Cam yeah. like 10 out of 10, but that's just me. Absolutely. I look at the quarterback situation that the Patriots have right now, Jarrett Stidham and Brian Horder. You mean to tell me that those two guys put together is better than Cam Newton? Like, you can't take Brian Horder's IQ, take Jarrett Stidham's arm strength, and they still be better than Cam Newton. There's absolutely no way. (laughs) I personally... I personally think that, like, there has to be more going on with this injury than the public know. Mm Mm-hmm. Or people just don't think that Cam Newton will mesh with the locker room because there have been a few chatter about him. You know, his his uh, how, how do I put this? His swagger is a little different than most people. So I don't know if those two are you know the primary reasons, but I do know that there's no way that you can take the DNA makeup of Jared Stidham and Brian Hoy and say, "Yep, these are my two guys. We don't need Cam Newton." There's no way. Earl Bennett with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. I've not spoken to you since the the Bears draft. They go Cole Komet with the first pick in the second round. And, you know, a lot of Bears fans are wondering, like, where's that offensive lineman? Well, the Bears were able to do that late in the draft. Um, and then they say, okay, so what's up with the, you know, the defense in the secondary? They did address that uh, by getting Johnson from uh, Utah. What were your overall thoughts on what the Bears did on draft day? I was confused. I'm not going to lie. I was trying to figure out, are they trying to win right now or are they still rebuilding? When you look at this draft, you bring in Cole Komet, that's 10 tight ends on your roster. I don't know a single team that said, hey, we're going to build our team around our tight ends and we're going to win the Super Bowl. I've yet to see that happen. Cole Komet, will he be a good player? Absolutely. But I do think it will take him two to three years to get adjusted to the NFL speed and then he'll be able to show the type of tight end that they drafted in the second round. Offensive line-wise, I don't know. I mean, there's guys that are still on the on the free agency block, like a Trent Williams that you could have, you know, made a trade for and brought in to really solidify the offensive line. But in the seventh round, you go in the, the position – I'm not going to lie to you. Dave Montgomery, he's a really good running back. I think the kid has what it takes to run in between the tackle. He breaks a lot of tackles. And why do he break a lot of tackles? Because the offensive line player is poor. So you don't address offensive line. The kid is going to get banged up. You have two quarterbacks that are coming off shoulder surgeries, and you still do not help them. I am completely confused as to how you're going to protect your quarterback and your running back with this offensive line that are mediocre. I mean, there's no other way to put it. That's for Foles or Trubisky, right? I mean, it doesn't matter who's back there. They need to have protection. Yeah, Foles, 
Trubisky, both guys coming off shoulder surgery. <laughs> you need to protect those guys. They need to feel comfortable in the pocket. Otherwise, they're going to have poor footwork. They're going to throw the ball off their back foot, and they're, and they're going to try to run and get out of the pocket as much as they can just because they don't have their protection up front. So I, I was also confused by it because if you really need to be able to bolster, I'm concerned about the right side of the line, but also the entire line as far as them being able to stay together. And so I didn't have a problem with the commit signing. It just, I had a problem with the Jimmy Graham signing. Like, it's like, why, why, why Jimmy, why give Jimmy Graham the money that they gave him? If you thought you'd go into the draft and get a tight end anyway. Right. I mean, it's like, it's almost like, okay, we'll get Jimmy Graham, but if Cole commit is not there, then we're safe. Well, now you got two guys. I know they do two different things. On the football field, I get that. But Earl, like Jimmy Graham, is he blocking? No. Is he catch? Is he going to give you seven or eighty catches? No. And Komet is young, so now that puts so much pressure on Komet to be able to produce. It's unfair, but this is what you need because otherwise, you'll be like you did last year. Didn't have, didn't you know? You don't have any production at that spot. Yeah, and when I look at Jimmy Graham. 2014-2015 Jimmy Graham. I love that guy. He was an absolute beast. Mm-hmm. When I look at 2019 and probably 2020 Jimmy Graham, he's okay. He don't make me say, oh my God, this is a great sign and you guys did a great job by going ahead and giving him a $6 million signing bonus. No, you don't. Like it, it, Either you leave Jimmy Graham where he's at in free agency and you bring in Cole Komet and you say, hey, look, you're our guy moving forward from the first day and you're going to be it. I'm okay with that. But signing Jimmy Graham, I mean, you could have gave that money to, you know, like I said, a, a Trent Williams. You could have brought in more offensive line help. You could have brought in, you know, some guys on the back end and on, on the defense. And so – I mean, right now they're trying to fill those holes with the money ball way. <laughs> they're bringing in Tashawn Gibson. They're bringing in Ted Ginn Jr. They're bringing in Trevor Davis. All these signings look good if this was five, six years ago, right? <laughs> if we bring Jimmy Graham the five, six years ago, Jimmy Graham the five, six years ago, Ted Ginn, Trevor Davis, Tashawn Gibson, all those guys were, were pretty much pro bowlers. And – yeah, they look great then, but we're going into the 2020 season, and you're bringing in a bunch of old guys, and I just don't think they're what you need right now for your team. You need some young guys that are studs, that are ready to play, that can help you win right now. And I don't think by going the Moneyball way that the Chicago Bears have gotten better this offseason. So are you saying right now, Earl, you could just you know put on the cleats right now and be able to run better routes than Ted Ginn? I want to see that. You and Ted Ginn. Ginn's thirty-five. Let's let's see it. You and him going head up. Ginn is he's thirty-five. I'm thirty-three. Obviously, he's always had the speed, right? He he he's faster than me, but we already know when you're running routes. There's not many people that can run routes with me. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to be able to run a lot of routes, right. but I can run some. <laughs> I thought, I was like, that's the key, years. right? You, you, you have to script this thing. All right, how many routes are we running? Six? Perfect. Got this. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Ted Ginn at 35 with the Bears. I'm like, okay, so you didn't re- you didn't address that really. Uh, you did it in the draft with one kid late in the draft, but now you have Ted Ginn, and it's like, is that on the other side of Allen Robinson? Is that on the side of, of Miller? I just, I don't know. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't know, it's Earl. a hand scratcher. I'm trying to figure it out too. You see the breaking news tag in Junior. You see breaking news Trevor Davis. Obviously, Trevor Davis will be more your special team guy. He'll be the the fifth, sixth receiver. You know, barely dressed, or when he do dress, it's specifically for special teams. He'll be a gunner. He'll be on punt. So that makes sense. He won't be the returner because you have an All Pro with Cordell Patterson. But if anything ever happens to Cordero Patterson, you have Trevor Davis to back him up. So I'm okay with that. Offensively, when you're looking at trying to spread the ball around, give your playmakers opportunity to make plays, um, I can really name two guys that I feel confident with. And even one guy's kind of shaky. Allen Robinson's a solid number one. Anthony Miller is shaky because he drops a lot of balls. And in the NFL, when you're dropping a lot of balls, your confidence gets shot really fast because the offensive coordinator talk trash to you, <laughs> your position coach talk trash to you, mm-hmm. and your teammates talk trash to you. So you have to deal with all of that at once, and your confidence starts to lower. So I'm really trying to figure out who is going to be that number two guy. I know they got Javon Weems. They like him. They have Riley Ridley, fourth-round draft pick from last year who played, you know, very seldom, but he's a guy that has speed and could be, you know, possibly that number two guy. So I think moving forward, they feel good with what they have in the locker room. Me personally, they don't have the body of work to where I feel comfortable with putting them out and saying, hey, yeah, let's go have a shootout against Green Bay or Minnesota this season and, hey, I think we'll be, you know, do very well. I, I honestly do not feel that way. What's next on the on the podcast? Who are you going to be talking to next, Earl? Uh, man, next on the podcast, we're trying to figure it out. A lot of people quarantine right now, and there's a lot of crazy, uh, <laughs> a lot of crazy stuff going on. And so we got to make sure we um, we filter this content a little bit. We don't want anything crazy going on. But I definitely have some really good guys that are going to be on it, and we'll just you know continue to gear up. We'll see what happens with sports this year. Uh, a lot of things may get pushed back some more, but we'll see. Hopefully over the next month, there'll be more information so we'll know a little bit better. I will just tell you, Earl, just uh, just a little pro tip from me to you. I would tell you, uh, while a lot of us is quarantined, it's a good time to get a lot of guests. While at the crib, you might as well just reach out to them. <laughs> Start, start, start recording because because before because when we're allowed to go out on a regular basis, it's gonna be hard to get these guys. So just I would say yeah. just start uh, just stockpiling the sound because I know you you and others have a lot of great stories to tell. That's why I'm looking forward to listening Thanks. to. I appreciate it, Earl. As always, I appreciate your time and your candor on this uh, Bears team. And uh, let's talk again soon. Absolutely, man. Always the pleasure to be on with you. Heard. All right, it's uh, Earl Bennett uh, from the Pro Style Media Podcast uh, with us right here on ESPN 1000 as you're listening to Under the Hood. You're listening to Under the Hood. Get the ESPN Chicago app for podcasts and the live stream from anywhere, anywhere, anywhere. Download in the app store today. This is ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. We'll talk more about The Last Dance with Nick Friedel front of the show every monday night we had a chance to talk to nick about the bulls 
The Last Dance, the NBA. We'll get to Nick with that coming up at our next segment at 930 here on ESPN 1000, brought to you by Coors Light. A couple of news and notes that I talked about on my Saturday show uh, that I wanted to bring here tonight is Andy Dalton is returning home to Texas. Andy Dalton, and there was questions like, could Andy Dalton be the backup to Mitch Trubisky? This is why it's relevant, because people thought, oh, Dalton, you know, bad uh, Cincinnati Bengals team, you know, what? But Andy Dalton could move this offense too, but he was he's not coming to the Bears, he's going to the Dallas Cowboys. So that story broke around oh, I think about eight o'clock, somewhere around there Saturday night when I was on, and I saw it from Adam Schefter and Dalton, who was released by the Cincinnati Bengals on Thursday, agreed to a one year deal with the Dallas Cowboys. The quarterback's deal has a base value of three million and could be worth up to seven million. And and so that works perfectly. And here's the angle. So Dak Prescott's the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. And whether it's your fantasy draft or just your overall thoughts of the NFL, when I say Dak Prescott, you say, right, maybe, you know, maybe above average, uh, maybe one of the top, maybe in your top 10 of quarterbacks in the NFC, maybe in the middle of the pack as far as overall the NFL, as far as quarterbacks are concerned. But he's not horrible. He's not bad he still has a lot more to give to the Dallas Cowboys team. And so Dak Prescott, who has turned the Cowboys down twice financially, they want to tie him up uh, for long-term deals, and Dak Prescott has said no. So I think Jerry Jones said, okay, if you're going to turn down two deals where we could franchise you or we can give you a little bit more, Dak Prescott's like, no, I'm going to try to keep renegotiating my deal here. So he brought in a guy like um, like Andy Dalton. Come to find out, Eric, that Andy Dalton and Dak Prescott have the same numbers over the last four years. Did you know this? I didn't, but it kind of makes sense to me. And and have, has either one, has Dak won a playoff game? I want to say... He's won one, right? I think he did break so. their long, decade long. Okay, so he's won one and Dalton's won none. But when you think, I I kind of consider them comparable. Like, they really are similar quarterbacks. Kind of game managers, going to take care of the football, going to get his athletes the ball, and that's it. Sounds crazy, but true, right? Yeah, it so makes he, sense. Here's the splits. You ready? First four seasons, Andy Dalton, 40-23. and 23, Dak Prescott, 40-24. and 24. 99 touchdowns for Andy Dalton, 97 for Prescott. Uh, passing yards, 15,700 for Prescott. 14-7 for Andy Dalton. And playoff appearances, two for Prescott, four for Dalton. <laughs> yeah, for, a, for an awful franchise. It's pretty it's amazingly similar. That is, that is, no one would think that because everyone last year was saying Dak was playing like a top 10 quarterback. But when you step back, Yeesh. yeah, I yeah, didn't see that. And uh, lastly, um, had sad news earlier today about Don Shula, the NFL's winningest coach who led the Dolphins to the league's only undefeated season, died today. He was 90 years old. He died peacefully in his home. Shula was the patriarch of the Miami Dolphins for 50 years. Uh, he brought that winning edge to the franchise. Uh, I remember the name Don Shula growing up and knowing how how big a name he was. 347 games won and really helped that Dolphins team that undefeated 1972-17-0 season when they beat the Redskins. So rest in peace, Don Shula, one of the great coaches of all time in the National Football League. Back to the last dance with Nick Friedel. We'll talk to him next right here on UTH. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Follow on Twitter at TweetJHood. 
The Last Dance has just been a tremendous watch on ESPN every Sunday. And this is a Last Dance Monday. We're talking about it brought to you by Coors Light. Every Monday we are able to check in with Nick Friedel, who covers the NBA for ESPN. And he joins us here on ESPN 1000. Nick, um, last night, once again, episodes five and six was uh, it was really layered and a lot to think about, right? Always. Always, my man. I mean, that's the way it's been. Since this thing started, in my mind, there were a couple things that were really, really interesting. Uh, the first part uh, in episode six, when you've got Tim Hallam, who has been with the Bulls now over 40 years, mm-hmm. uh, who we've known for years and years as the PR director, and he's describing what it's like for Michael to not have uh, any way to kind of stay out of the limelight. When you, when you walk out of that hotel room, uh, the light is on and everybody wants a piece of you and it just doesn't stop until you either go back to the hotel room on the road or go back home uh, when you can get away. Uh, and then the, the cutaway to, to MJ laying on the couch and saying, you know, I think this is about it. <laughs> I mm-hmm. think I've had enough of everything. And that was uh, during that last 97-98 season. So that was, thought that was a cool moment. And then uh, you live this even more than I did because this kind of was before my time. But the amount of pushback that Sam Smith, uh, our our friend, uh, for uh, for years and years, who covered the Bulls and still covers the Bulls, but the amount of pushback that he got in in those first few weeks after the the Jordan rules were released. I mean, I I have always looked up to Sam for for what he has accomplished as a writer uh, and for the way he treated me when I first came on the beat. But to see some of those news stories and to hear Sam in the documentary say, hey, you know, the paper told me to, <laughs> to, to lay low for a week and that, that he was just under siege, to, to realize how that still resonates all these years later and to, uh, to appreciate going back in time, what it must have been like for Sam to to publish all those different things that he had all the reporting on and know that his relationship with, with Michael would be forever changed or, or altered to still do it. I thought that was very cool. Yeah. I, um, when the paper tells you to, to lay low after that, it, it shows you how hot it was. It was, oh, yeah. the, it was the ultimate story because... Now you are tugging on Superman's cape because all the stories are always positive. And then you hear these stories from Sam Smith. Um, It takes a special testicular fortitude to do that, but that's part of the job, right? No question. And uh, that's the part, frankly, that I think has really gotten lost uh, these days. You, You just you don't see journalists want to to dig as deep a lot of the times as they used to because they're afraid to to piss off whomever it may be, whether it's uh, a coach, uh, an executive, a player. But it's one thing to piss off somebody from that group. It's another thing to piss off Michael Jordan yeah. <laughs> and, and, and not be afraid of whatever he may or may not say. So in time, Sam's book always stands up. But on a personal level for me, uh, within the business, I, I appreciate it even more. And to see that those first few minutes uh, and that discussion about the book and what it did and 
and how much pressure Sam was under and how much scrutiny that people uh, were, were giving him in that moment to realize that he still wasn't afraid and he never backed down off of it. That's pretty cool. Also, the documentary tells you something that has been a lie for many years in which uh, players don't read the paper. I mean, <laughs> how much footage did we see with Jordan opening up the Tribune, the Sun-Times, the broadsheet, reading the columns? And you could see, like, where his thumb was that it clearly was on Mariotti at one point. The, the, the back of the page is loose. The other side is really bulky. Like, oh, he's reading Mariotti or Tellender. He's, re- he's reading the columns because players actually do read what is being written. No question. No question. And in uh, the scene that also stands out to me, not just what we saw last night, uh, but last week, uh, our old friend John Jackson, who, mm-hmm. uh, who used to write for the Sun-Times, uh, Michael sitting there saying, hey, I like that story you wrote uh, about people just trying to enjoy what I'm doing now instead of worrying about what I'm going to uh, do in the future. I mean, that that is the biggest fallacy to me for players, even now, uh, Hoodie, you, you know this very, very well, but the idea that players don't care or they don't read stories or they don't listen to the radio and, and hear what people say, that's ridiculous. It always has been, it always will be. Players care. Uh, even more than that, the associates closest to players, family members, friends, uh, they all read and see what is said, and it gets back to the players. Now, whether the player confronts the reporter or not later on, that's a different story. But when you hear players or executives or coaches say, oh, I, I, don't, I don't pay attention to what you guys write in my best uh, Tibbs voice, mm-hmm. that is ridiculous because that's just not the case. Everybody cares, and it's human nature. People want to hear what is being said about them. The only difference is, and Steve Kerr and Steph Curry uh, have said this a lot in the last week or so uh, in their uh, experiences with the Warriors, the difference now is players have to hear about it on social media more than MJ or Scotty or any of these old Bulls guys did back in time. And that's the key on top of the media aspect that they they still care about to this day. The difference now is that this generation's players are dealing with a whole different level of criticism uh, and people praising them than they have in years past. Nick Friedel covers the NBA for ESPN. He joins me, Jonathan Hood, on Under the Hood on ESPN 1000 and the brand new ESPN Chicago app. Just to tamp down a little bit more, Nick, on MJ and him laying across that couch, you know, saying he was much more comfortable before the camera crew came in. You know, that reminds me of a conversation you and I had last year. Remember when Brian Windhorst was saying that he thought that today's players are, there's a sense of loneliness because it's just them and the social media. There's the, the lack of communication between players outside of basketball is at an all-time high because of the generation. I guess I, I can understand. I know there might be some that will look at it and say, you know, Michael, you're the best player in the NBA. Everyone loves you. Everyone's pulling at you. Everybody wants a camera, you know, a picture of you, an autograph. But there is a sense of like, yes, I'm in the spotlight, but that's all I'm ever. I'm always in the spotlight. And so maybe that's why 
Michael felt the way he did. And I think there might be some guys that you cover that might feel the same way, like Kevin Durant once upon a time. No doubt. No doubt. I, I think there, there are a lot of similarities in that regard, Hoodie, because when you get to that level and nobody's been at, a, uh, at Michael's level, he's on a level all on his own. But when you get to a certain level in the league, you're you're just kind of used to not only the attention, but uh, you're used to at times the isolation that comes with being that good and being that scrutinized. And uh, this goes back to uh, to Brian's comments, and it's something that we've heard Adam Silver uh, discuss as well. But I do agree with the the notion, uh, the feeling that players in this era are more unhappy than they've ever been on the whole because Michael I think after years and years in the spotlight he could deal with it he knew how to handle it as best he could and as has been outlined in the the documentary uh, it's an impossible situation to deal with on a daily basis but so many of these guys are looking for validation in areas that you're not going to be able to get it from You can go out and score 35, 40 points in a game, but you go back on your phone and people are still going to crush you no matter what you do on social media. And that is is really difficult. I think that's the key for for Michael. And we saw it again last night. He's getting all this uh, this press and a lot of it is bad press going back to that series in the postseason against the Knicks. I believe it was a 93 He'd gone to Atlantic City and he gambled and it started to come out that, hey, there's this other side of MJ that we don't, as a public, know about. And so what he did was he went out and shut people up by playing basketball the best he could and winning the series and and continuing on the greatness that he had been in. These guys these days, these players, they don't have that ability to go out and shut up the public and the media uh, by just playing great basketball. And you made the parallel, I think it's very uh, well taken, with, with KD. Mm-hmm. That's the issue. With with Kevin, he is so unbelievably talented, but the basketball isn't enough anymore in this generation to make the criticism stop. And for so many fans, the criticism is never going to stop because, one, they know it it's going to get under his skin, but two, they know they're going to get attention from it. Maybe he'll respond. Maybe somebody else will respond. And that part of this uh, is very difficult uh, for a lot of players to, uh, to comprehend. And I think, again, that's the difference now than when MJ was uh, at the top 20 plus years ago. So this relates to your beat as well, talking about athletes and politics Listening to Michael Jordan talk about um, how he really stayed out of politics, it, it's it, it's not just back then in the '90s, Nick. It's now, uh, as we see police brutality uh, with films of this across the country, almost on a daily basis on social media. You know, um, Jordan did something about it. He made sure he gave money to um, the the police and also for the anti, you know, for for police and and the. Um, and for people to be able to come together. So he was able to give money for both groups. 
And so um, he's always stayed out of politics, but yet the team that you cover, whether it's Steve Kerr, Draymond Green, or Steph Curry, have always felt that they wanted to use politics on their platform. What, what do you think of what Michael said about staying out of politics with the uh, Jesse Helms era uh, and the team that you cover when it comes to politics? Yeah, Hoodie, I, I thought that was a very telling part of, of the doc last night, but it wasn't even so much what Michael said to me. It was what President Obama said, Mm -hmm. acknowledging that, hey, you know, as uh, a black man coming up, wanting to get into public service uh, and and wanting to uh, to kind of make more of of what was going on. I I was a little disappointed and I thought it was honest uh, and I appreciated where he was coming from in that moment because I know. That was one of the, the biggest criticisms on MJ throughout his career. I, I think that people still hold that against him over time. Now, you you understand uh, from Jordan's perspective, and he, of course, even now he doesn't back away from it, why he said what he said or did what he did and the actions uh, that he made. But I thought that was an honest aspect of, of what was going on at the time and what's happening now. Uh, but... Uh, again, to compare it, and uh, the Warriors are the closest team that anybody has seen to uh, to Michael and, and those 90s Bulls, mm-hmm. to live that last season, and even more kind of bled into this season with the controversy surrounding Steve Kerr and, and President Trump and China and, and everything that was going on, that this, this team loves and lives for uh, making a stand and and I think that goes to uh, the heart of what Steve Kerr believes in Hoodie and Steve Kerr's whole platform is to stand up for what you believe in and what you feel passionate about and I don't know because I haven't talked to him if, if his experience with Michael uh, has anything to do with that I think it's much more uh, what happened to his father and the way he was assassinated and, and how powerful that was for him in the moment. The, the point, though, is if you have a team in this era that doesn't stand up uh, for for what they believe, for that doesn't stand up for uh, social rights or whatever the cause is, I don't know if that would play in 2020. Uh, I think the world has changed. I think at this point in there are lots of examples of this. I still uh, remember Derrick Rose wearing the I Can't Breathe shirt for a Bulls game at the UC, and that was probably seven, eight years ago in, in regards to police brutality uh, against uh, young black men. I mean, this is the kind of world that we live in, and these are the kind of statements we expect athletes to make over time. And I think there are a lot of guys that look back on on Michael's popularity as much as they love him, as much as they appreciate what he did. And they say, you know what, if I get this chance to have this platform and to use it for what I believe in, I'm not going to do what he did because I'm not going to be afraid to make the stance uh, that he was maybe afraid to in the moment. And, and I'd also had this hoodie to tie it all up. I think part of the reason with MJ not making these statements, and he touched on it with the Republicans buy sneakers too, he didn't want to upset sponsors and and he didn't want to rock the boat. 
what what a huge part of this is is the astronomical amounts of money that are coming into the league and for individual players even if they did rock the boat and they they pissed off some company or or somebody was upset with what they said it's not going to change anything mm-hmm. the money is gigantic now and it was big then for michael but it is completely different than where it's been and i think it's that has made it easier uh, for athletes to stand up for what they really believe. Nick Friel covers the NBA for ESPN. He joins me, Jonathan Hood on Under the Hood. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. How you doing? Follow us on the gram at IGJ Hood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Nick Friel covers the NBA for ESPN. He joins me, Jonathan Hood on Under the Hood. Last Dance Mondays brought to you by Coors Light on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. Nick, can the NBA draw 60,000 or more fans in a arena in America like the Bulls drew in Atlanta for that one game? I'm going to say no. <laughs> that, well, that's a damn shame. <laughs> like I, I'm going to say no. Uh, I think the closest thing, again, it would have been, Hoodie, the closest thing would have been to shove the Hawks back into, now I guess, the Mercedes-Benz Dome right. uh, and, and put the Warriors there last season. The Warriors, and, and it is so interesting to me personally because I've gone from Chicago to the Bay Area and covered both of these teams, but that team last year with Steph and Kevin and, and Clay Thompson and Draymond, I I can still remember last year the amount of Warriors jerseys that were everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one, it speaks to the, uh, the, the fact that the Hawks aren't very good, but, but two... It speaks to just how transcendent those teams are. And Steve Kerr remarked, I went back through my notes actually last night, uh, before that Hawks game last year, he said, hey, this is pretty pretty close to what it used to be like when the Bulls rolled into town. Because you'd see Bulls jerseys 20-plus years ago, and now you see Warriors jerseys all over the place. So on a one-off, do I think they could get 60000 again? No. Because, again, Michael is on his own level. But uh, the closest thing to it would have been that Warriors group in that moment. And I would guess, just a pure guess, that you could get uh, 40000 plus. Again, you know, this ties into our whole conversation. The difference in the game is money. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, in that last game at the Georgia Dome, the tickets were not that expensive on the whole. Today... The tickets are way more expensive all over the place. It's not just an Atlanta thing. The tickets to get into these games are astronomical. Well, why? Because there's much more demand, and the money coming in forces the prices to go up because owners want uh, a cut of the action, and you can get a cut of that action by charging more to get into the game. That's amazing. Even in today's NBA, there's not one draw that can get 60,000 people into a stadium. Like LeBron's last game wouldn't do it, would it? Probably not. It would get close, Hoodie, but again, 
you're you're talking about people that wanted to sit in the stratosphere in the Georgia Dome for probably five bucks. Right. If you if you threw the prices down, maybe. But you and I both know for LeBron's game, the prices would be wow. off the charts. So I doubt it. Yeah, that's something. That's that shows you who Michael Jordan was as a draw. And of course, Atlanta, not a very good market for uh, for basketball. Even when Dominique was there, they weren't filling up the Omni, which is amazing. If I lived in Atlanta, I would have seen Dominique play every home game if I could, because that was they had some good teams. But boy, when you see that many people, that's just sports fans, basketball fans just want to see Michael. Sixty thousand Georgia Dome was just that's pretty huge. Um, you know, speaking of all time greats, also a piece um, watching Kobe Bryant. And his thoughts on Michael. You know what, Nick? I I knew it was coming, but it was still jarring. Because to see Kobe up there, because he just kind of popped on the screen. You're like, oh, gosh. You know, that feeling of how Kobe looked up to Michael. And to hear Kobe talk about Michael and their relationship that they had when they played together. To see a young guy, 19, 20 years old, and see Jordan toward the, you know, the kind of the twilight of his career but still going strong it's great to see those two on the floor because you just don't get that in sports every day Cody, i'm sitting here holding the phone nodding uh, because i i felt the same way you did watching that moment uh, of the doc but what it did for me on top of hearing kobe say you know don't compare us playing one-on-one you know that it, that's not what it should be it brought me back to watching Michael's eulogy at Kobe's funeral mm-hmm. uh, and the way it humanized Michael Jordan for I don't know the people who had grown up like me watching him it humanized him for the people who who didn't grow up watching him who were too young to appreciate just what he was doing and how unbelievably great he was because all they had seen was uh, the crying meme and in some of the things that had been said over the last few years uh, it made him human, and I think that was one, one of Kobe's best gifts uh, to Michael, not only at the end of his career, because I'm with you, you watched uh, those games, and I don't know if we had talked about it before in the past, but I was actually lucky enough to be at that 98 All-Star game at the Garden. Uh, a buddy of mine, his dad had gotten tickets, and we had flown up to, to New York City, and I was sitting there. And I just kept thinking, this is incredible watching all these guys. But I can remember even, I think I would have been, you know, 14, 15, uh, the amount of attention on Kobe Bryant in that moment was unreal. I mean, Kobe at that time uh, was not only coming into his own, but you just, you knew that as a like a superpower off the floor. Kobe Bryant was going to be very close to MJ uh, as far as people wanting his shoes, people wanting him to endorse different stuff. And it was all set, uh, set up and predicated on his ability to dominate on the floor. And I can still remember going into the garden that night and going, man, this is, this is pretty cool. Like this guy is, is coming to take the throne. Because uh, that was really his, his national coming out party from uh, a basketball perspective. Because that that game, those were the stars of stars. And MJ won the MVP, but Kobe was the guy putting on the show. And you saw a couple of those highlights last night. But uh, Kobe always felt like he had to live up to uh, 
the example that, that Michael set and to see that over time and to appreciate in that moment last night when Kobe's talking about, hey, you know, I've got these five titles because uh, of, of what I was trying to follow because of what MJ did. Uh, those were pretty special words, and, and there were a lot of special moments between those two clearly over the years. Nick, I'm glad you spent some time really enjoying the, uh, the documentary and uh, looking forward to next Sunday. should be good. I'm looking forward to next Monday, my man, because these are the highlight of my week. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for coming on as always. Always. You got it. Our thanks to Eric Ostrowski on the other side of the glass, producing and directing the show. Full show tomorrow between 7 and 10. And don't forget, oh, Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday as well at 930. All part of the mix right here on Under the Hood.